This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, you was a number. And the inmates understood that. If you're out there, there's a past period. You can hear it, just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during an execution, it had an impression on them that maybe was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to That was one of the one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd have to plan in there to... to Get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode and another season of the Behind Great Walls podcast, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who lived, worked, and resided at the site. My name's Anthony. I'm chatting with Sky. Hi. Hey. Long oh time gosh. no chat. That is right. What a busy summer it has been. <laughs> Seriously, probably for you far more than for me. But um, yeah, it's uh, I have missed this. I'm so excited to be back. Oh my gosh, me too. What have you been oh. up to this summer? Outside of the interim, you know, historic sites administrator position, the, the pen's been running great and things have been going well. We've been doing a ton of events at the old pen. But I've also just been playing a lot of gigs and writing music and, you know, I, I like to keep myself busy. Nice. Oh, you know what I did? Hmm. I went skydiving. You did? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes, it was When amazing. and where? Tell me everything. You know, I went to Lake Tahoe. It was a family reunion just to get together. Met up with family and we were eating breakfast, you know, the day after I arrived. And a cousin said, hey... Uh, we're going skydiving later if you're interested. And I laughed and I was like, oh yeah, of course, I would love to. And he's like, no, seriously. And, well, let me go ask my wife. And she's just like, what? Yeah, okay. And, you know, like two hours later, I was jumping out of a plane. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Was it, I mean, was it scary? Oh my gosh. You know what? No, I, I don't, well, that's really weird to say, but. There, I, I didn't feel all that scared. It was very strange. It was very surreal. I think I was still not realizing that I had said yes. And <laughs> yeah, like you didn't have a time to freak out about it. Yeah, exactly. Like literally, the it was about a I don't know an hour car ride there, and about half an hour in, I decided, okay, I better just look up what what do I need to know about skydiving before I do this. And so, uh, you know, I, I avoided all the things that talked about, you know, death and uh, losing life and limb. But uh, sure, all the fun parts of it, I, I read those and was like, okay, all right. Sounds like I just kind of hold on tight and lift my legs at the end. And that's literally what I did. It was so much fun and I highly recommend it. <laughs> that's amazing. Good for you. Are you afraid of heights at all? I'm not. No. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't think I could do it. I'm oddly afraid of heights. Oh man! You know, I used to be, and then I worked as a roofer for a couple summers, and that. Oh yeah, that'll you fix quickly. It. Yeah, get over that fear. 
<laughs> but uh, how about you, Sky? What's going on with you? Oh, man, I am out of Dallas for <gasps> a year. And oh, my gosh. just currently I'm in my uh, closet in my Airbnb in Haley. Um, I am halfway into my research trip to Sun Valley. So I've been doing uh, I go every uh, weekday to the community library in Ketchum, and I've just been looking at all these documents about the early years and all the celebrity women that were here, and I really, truly feel like I am living my best life. I am <laughs> so happy to oh. be back and to be in the wilderness and to be where fa- like the leaves are changing, which is oh. entirely unheard of in Dallas. <laughs> Um, I've gone mountain biking three weeks in a row. Wow. Uh, crashed pretty, pretty gnarly. Oh, it was really bad. A couple weeks ago, I just smashed myself right into the ground and, uh, all of the abrasions on my leg have finally scabbed up except for the biggest one, right? Sort of on the center of my knee. It's fine. The bruising has finally gone down. Obviously, the swelling has gone down, but no broken bones. It's all just superficial. And it was a learning curve. My dad is actually coming into town tomorrow. Today is the, what, 19th of September. He's coming into town tomorrow to, uh, we're going to go ride up Baldy a little bit. And um, so, yeah, it's, I am doing really good and had a great I don't want to say a great time this summer. It was just me staying inside because it was so freaking hot in Dallas. But had a great move. My mom and I took a the long way around and saw the Grand Canyon and arches. And, and then I just have been back here ever since. So all good. That's so awesome. I'm glad to hear oh, that, thanks. Sky. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, be but safe I, on the trails tomorrow. My God. So, thanks. Yeah, I'm. Uh, there's a bunch of switchbacks, which going up will be helpful because I think we have to climb like 700 feet to get to the top. Oh, uh, but uh, oh. coming back down, I'm a little nervous about the switchbacks. But you know what? If I crash, then I crash. It's not anything new. <laughs> so... <laughs> you're just just bruised and like tattered all over you're like it's calluses honestly, yeah I, I i did do a successful ride this weekend alone where i did not crash and it got really technical so i'm pleased with my progress so everyone if you're nervous about whatever new thing you're trying you're gonna fall in whatever way that means but if you just pick back up have some confidence you'll be great yeah, that's right. That's my inspirational speech before we get started on what is bound to be, I think, oh. a pretty wild episode. Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Should you start? I can't wait to hear about this guy because I did the preliminary research, some preliminary research on him, and mm-hmm. I think I copy and pasted articles into 200 plus pages worth, uh, oh, and yeah. it sounds like I didn't even find everything so let's start off with you because i don't think i can wait any longer to find out about this guy (laughs) oh my gosh just i uh i'm gonna go off the rails like telling the story this is so wild to me this is duncan mcdougall johnston jr number 5826 and number 6383 Sources, of course, his gigantic inmate files, uh, newspaper.com articles, primarily from Idaho, Utah, and California, Idaho Daily Statesman, of course, on Newsbank, 
Ancestry.com articles, findagrave.com obituary for Ernest Ralph Uncle Joe Kohler, a Wikipedia article on the Battle of Ambos Nogales, a C-SPAN Real America presentation by historian Julie Prieto called Uncle Sam Watching the Mexican Border. It's so fascinating. History Channel, This Day in History, an article for April 6th, 1917. History Channel article by Annette McDermott called How the Sinking of the Lusitania Changed World War One," an article on the Alcazar Theater on cinematreasures.org, uh, magazine data on Hall Art House Incorporated at uh, philsp.com. Duncan McDougall Johnston Jr. was born on October 17, 1898, to Duncan McDougall and Helga Maria Jeanette Abigail Stein in Butte, Montana. Now, his father was actually born in Scotland and worked as a coffee roaster in Butte, Montana, and his mother, Helga, was born in Norway, and they were listed in the 1900 census in Butte. And two years later, the Johnston family actually moved to Boise, Idaho. They appeared in the 1910 census when uh, Duncan was 12 years old, uh, living in a house on the northwest corner of 12th and Alturas near Hyde Park. So for listeners' reference, this is the house directly behind Goody's Soda Fountain today. Have you ever been to Goody's? Yes, I love Goody's. I oh just went there uh, like right before I came to Ketchum, actually, and got like an old-fashioned ice cream soda. And as oh. someone who constantly wishes she lived in the 1930s, I'm in love with it. <laughs> So good. Well, the house directly behind. That's where Duncan is growing up as this this young That's boy. That's actually so cool. When did right? go- like did he know about goodies? When did that come about? No, you know, I I looked at it and it was just a regular house for many years and then I think it was like a carpet shop for or something like that for a while. So, uh Duncan's father's job was listed as a quote salesman in wholesale groceries, end quote. And Duncan, despite having his father's name, was the youngest of four, which I thought was so interesting that you would, Mm -hmm. you know, make your youngest your junior. He had two sisters named Nora and Mary Jane and an older brother named Herbert. And, oh, man, I I did not include a lot on Herbert, but Herbert had a very fascinating life himself and spent a lot of time in Alaska and, like, traveling the world and working in the fishing industry and all this stuff, but... That's all I'm going to talk about for him. He's he's very interesting as well. Now, the Johnston family was struck with a major tragedy a month before Duncan's 14th birthday when Helga, his mother, died suddenly at the age of 48 in the family home on September 13, 1912. The newspaper noted that it was, quote, caused by heart trouble, end quote. They held the funeral at the Presbyterian Church, coordinated by the Order of the Eastern Star, a co-ed pendant body of the Freemasons. And just throughout this whole story, um, just know that the Johnston family was well-connected to the Masonic and Fraternal Orders, and it's just a kind of an underlying theme throughout this. He's a very well-connected individual. In high school, Duncan enlisted into the National Guard. He joined the 2nd Idaho Infantry Unit. And in 1916, so he's about about 17, 18 years old, the Mexican Revolution, which spanned roughly between 1910 and 1920, was heating up near the United States and Mexico border. 
President Woodrow Wilson sent a U.S. military unit into Mexico early that year to track down and capture Mexican revolutionary Francisco Pancho Villa in retaliation for his revolutionary forces raid in the town of Columbus, New Mexico, in which 10 civilians were killed. The volatility of this region required National Guard units from around the United States to be stationed along the border. And Duncan Johnston's unit happened to be stationed in Nogales, Arizona, which actually borders the Sonora, Mexico town of the same name. And there are several accounts of the 2nd Idaho Infantry Unit's camp, nicknamed Camp Little, being one of the best for its organization, cleanliness, and lack of disease or, honestly, trouble amongst these young men and boys that are in this unit. And some newspaper articles actually describe it as, quote, the best militia regiment on the border, end quote. So, you know, Idaho's pretty well represented. Captain Richard Kading of Company E in the 2nd Idaho Regiment wrote a letter published in the newspaper saying, quote, those eastern regiments have nothing over your boys, and Idaho should certainly be proud of her regiment. I have spent the last 15 years of my life among the United States Army in all parts of the world, and I will certainly take my hat off to your regiment. I could hardly distinguish any differences between your boys and the regulars, end quote. Duncan would have been involved in these really long marches that were really well documented, uh, sometimes over 60 miles along the border. One fascinating account describes one of these young men in the unit actually dressing up in civilian clothing and crossing over into Nogales in Mexico and exploring the town. And when he returned, quote, his clothes sure spelled the word hardship, end quote. And he describes the desperate conditions of the people across the border, noting, quote, no wonder the peons are found in outland bands. The general feeling of the greasers is of a jealous and suspicious nature and not so much of the war spirit, end quote. So he's talking about the conditions were just not very good for the people on in these border towns. And so they're just kind of fighting out of jealousy and suspicion. Due to this, this volatility in this region, American authorities didn't know how long the Guard members would actually be stationed along the border because when the Idaho Infantry Unit went, it was the middle of summer, so Duncan was out of high school. Uh, he was on his summer break. He was a Boise High School student. His father actually wrote Senator William Bora after school started in the fall of 1916 and asked why high school and college-age students couldn't return to their respective states to continue their education. And William Bora actually responded to Duncan Sr. in a letter that was published in the newspaper, and he said, quote, I have your letter of September 6th regarding your desire to have your son— Duncan McD. Johnston, mustered out of the military service so that he can attend school. I have had this matter up with the Adjutant General of the Army at the War Department, and he has advised me as follows. When the first order was issued with regard to the students in colleges and high schools who were enlisted in the militia regiments, it was hoped that the number would be found to be so small that their discharge could be authorized so as to enable them to return to their scholastic work. Investigation, however, demonstrated that the number is really very large, and that serious disorganizations of many militia units would take place if a general discharge of students were ordered. It is hoped, however, that before long, conditions in the Mexican problem will so far improve that it will be practicable to relieve all of these citizen soldiers from their present service, and that this will take place soon enough to prevent any serious loss of time to the student class. I have gone into the matter carefully, but the War Department seems to be determined to allow no discharges of members of the National Guard 
at this time for the purpose of attending school. I have been very glad indeed to look into the matter for you and regret I am unable to send you more encouraging information at this time. William Bora, end quote. Maybe they shouldn't allow high school students to serve in the military, but don't call me crazy. So not long after this letter is printed in the newspaper, Captain Wilson of the 2nd Idaho Infantry was actually waiting to board a train back to Idaho when he was shot by a Mexican soldier across the border. He wasn't seriously wounded, but tensions flared, and American guardsmen and soldiers raised their weapons but were ordered not to fire. Quote, and so our soldiers walk his post on the border by day and by night, knowing that any moment may bring to him or his comrade the crack of the assassin's rifle and the whine of the bullet as it seeks its mark. End quote. Despite these high stakes and anxiety, the soldiers on the border continued to march, train, and uh, even play football. <laughs> uh, the Idaho Guard actually played a game against West Point cadets and lost. 12 to 13. So, you know, it's football season. It's kind of a kind of a fun thing to think about. And this the, this was back when football was like positively brutal. Oh, yeah. There wasn't the the forward pass didn't exist. Like literally they they invent I don't want to say invented the forward pass, but they allowed the forward pass so that people would stop dying during football <laughs> games. Like this is not like the fun like oh, we'll get into it kind of sport that we see today. It was brutal. But very uh, American sport, not because it's brutal, but just because we, you know, love it. Anyway, that was just my my culture that I had to drop in there. Man, what a perfect thing for a bunch of young soldiers to pass the time. and Yeah, get some aggression out. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, you know, they stayed on through the winter. And in early 1917, a letter was intercepted from German Foreign Minister Arthur Zimmerman to the German minister to Mexico, Heinrich von Eichard, calling for an alliance between Mexico and Germany. And Germany would continue to sink all ships in war zones. And this propelled President Wilson to pull guardsmen from the border and begin focusing on the potential war in Europe. And the Idaho 2nd Infantry returned finally in March of 1917. So, you know, he almost missed a whole, almost a year of school there. A month later, President Wilson called for a declaration of war against Germany, and Congress granted the request. And on April 6, 1917, America entered the war. On April 16th, an evening Capitol News article appeared titled, High School Boys Respond to Call. 22 Boise High Students, quote, have quit the classroom to answer the call to the colors to fight in the cause of freedom and humanity, end quote. Among those, of course, included Duncan McDougal Johnston. And so Duncan leaves Idaho after this short time back from the border. He is listed as a member of the 146th Light Field Artillery at Camp Mills, Long Island, New York. And in November, he was actually nominated for a cadetship at West Point. And in the United States Army Transport Service passenger list, Duncan Johnston was listed as a corporal. And he set sail for Europe on December 24th, on Christmas Eve, 1917. And over the next year, young Duncan was fighting in the trenches in in Europe and in France, not even 20 years old. The war ended November 11th, 1918. 
And a write-up in the Evening Capital News on September 19, 1919, described the Boise High servicemen, quote, Duncan Johnston spent over 18 months with the Army of Occupation in France and Germany, end quote. He was in the heavy artillery units over there, so you can imagine the, just the uh, explosions that were constantly around him. After the war is over, Duncan returns to Idaho, and my next uh, discovery is he's marrying Bertha Virginia McLean on December 17, 1920, at the Congregational Church in Boise. Bertha, she actually went by Virginia throughout her life. Uh, the Idaho statesman noted that it was, quote, a prominent among the weddings of the week, and immediately after the ceremony, the party was taken to the Owyhee, where a dinner was served in the private dining room, end quote. Virginia wore a navy blue dress embroidered with bright leaves and a silk braid, which I thought, that is an interesting wedding dress choice. Uh, Duncan's groomsman was actually Virginia's brother, David McLean, and a year later, Duncan and Virginia had a child that, that they named Duncan McLean Johnston Jr., so he would be number three in this line with this name. Amongst all the different things that Duncan was involved with, he was actually an active member of the Scottish Rite Masons, and in 1926 was elected secretary. Ernest Kohler was named president. Ernest Kohler, also a fascinating character, his nickname was actually Uncle Joe Kohler. That might sound familiar to some local historians as that of the Spanish-American Civil War veteran slash world traveler slash 1920s Orpheum theater manager in Twin Falls slash uh, mayor of Twin Falls in 1939, an office he held twice. And Uncle Joe Kohler's story is also fascinating. And for a young man like 24-year-old Duncan, he would be a good man to be connected to and have that network. On June 5th, 1927, the Idaho statesman announced a cast-off party for Duncan and Virginia Johnston. And they were going to leave Boise and make their new home in Twin Falls, Idaho. In 1929, Duncan was chosen as the vice commander of the 5th District American Legion in Twin Falls. The American Legion, of course, is a veterans organization that, you know, today hosts over 2 million members and continues to influence social change and benefits the lives of veterans and their families. A couple years later, in 1932, Duncan was listed in the city directory as a jeweler at 121 Main Street in Twin Falls, and his jewelry shop was called Johnston's Diamond Shop, with the extra E at the end of shop, S-H-O-P-P-E. Oh, fancy. Uh, He employed a friend that actually served in France with him named William Levant to be his assistant. In February 1933, Duncan Johnston ran for mayor of Twin Falls, and his statement for running noted, quote, At the request of many citizens of Twin Falls, I announce my candidacy for the office of mayor. If you feel that I could be of service as chief executive of our city, I will do my best in conjunction with the city council to conduct a safe, conservative administration, reducing taxes to the fullest measure possible, broadening city employment by every feasible means, and in all ways working progressively for the best interests of Twin Falls, end quote. And his logo was a broom, and he called for a, quote, clean sweep, end quote, of all city affairs. So, of course, you know, the depression is going on, and uh, he says, quote, let's move forward with the nation, and let's help the National New Deal with a clean sweep in our own city government, end quote. He is running as a Democrat. 
A, uh, a rumor actually spread that the Women's Christian Temperance Union endorsed Duncan, but they retracted that in March of 33. Duncan ended up pairing off with the incumbent, R.E. Bobeer. And on April 25th, the election was held in a record-breaking turnout of voters. And Duncan McDougal Johnston had that sweep and wins the election. One of his first activities was to actually go to the airwaves and speak at the New City radio station. Quote, as far as is known, he is the first official in the office here to address the people of the community over the air. End quote. He served as mayor of Twin Falls, Idaho for four years, and his time as mayor was actually pretty productive as he worked to improve canal systems, safety checks on vehicles, improving roads and even traffic routes, and putting regulations on milk and milk products. Uh, He called for municipal bonds for improvement on streets and metal pipes for uh, plumbing in the city. You know, he proclaimed August 30th, 1933 to be a holiday in Twin Falls, quote, for the purpose of aiding and assisting the NRA committee to conduct its consumers drive, end quote. So, and the NRA that, is not the National Rifle Association. It's the National uh, Recovery Administration, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So he's he's pushing all of these uh, really amazing New Deal ideals. Yeah, New Deal, and, yeah. Um, trying to improve the city from you know top to bottom he sees the expansion of, of motor vehicles but it's requiring people to actually like let's look at these vehicles make sure that they're all safe and make sure our roads are safe and all of our pathways are safe so so he's he's really trying to like propel twin falls forward and of course i'm i'm glossing over all of the things he did but one of the biggest things that he actually wrote uh as one of his major accomplishments when he ran again in 1935 was actually lowering the operating costs for the city of Twin Falls by a quarter of a million dollars compared to the predecessor. So, you know, he was, he was doing a pretty good job of really cleaning things up and eliminating waste. And, and in 1936, Duncan was actually candidate for the nomination for United States representative for the Democratic Party, and unfortunately he was defeated, and he actually left the spotlight of politics, but remained an advisor for the Democratic Party in Idaho. He would always kind of be involved in politics. On May 20th, 1938, a traveling jewelry salesman from the Decker Jewelry Company of Salt Lake named George Olson visited Duncan's jewelry shop. Duncan paid George Olson $763.30 in cash for jewelry consignment Duncan had in his store. The Decker Jewelry Company held a $3,500 chattel mortgage on Duncan's jewelry shop, and George Olson, he was passing through to collect on this payment. And the two men, they actually, they do this transaction, and then they drive out to the Italian Gardens, this nice little restaurant, and they had a drink and then returned to town. The next morning, George returned to Duncan's shop and discussed the rest of the debt Duncan owned the Deckard Company, and uh, they separated as Duncan ran errands in town, and then he returned to his, his jewelry shop where he found George actually outside passed out asleep in his car. So he wakes him up, and the two drive around. They're talking business for a couple hours, and they parted around lunchtime on May 21st, 1938. This business exchange would change both men's lives forever. George Leland Olson was born July 2nd, 1904, so about six years younger than Duncan. 
and he was the, actually the son of a police officer, and he was a very popular man in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was an amateur baseball player, one of the best bowlers in Utah. He was on two championship bowling teams and even bowled a perfect 300 in 1937. A sports editor named Frank K. Baker wrote about George in his series called Backseat Driving and described George as, quote, an apt pupil at virtually every sport he undertook. Top-notch proficiency came to him with surprising rapidity, end quote. Uh, George was also a good husband and father to three young children. George traveled regularly for his job at the Decker Jewelry Company located at 107 West 2nd South Street in Salt Lake City. And he was a uh, he was a great salesman by all accounts, and uh, so much so he was actually planning a trip in late 1938 to Bermuda after winning a prize at work selling a bunch of watches. So his career, which spanned 15 years with this Deckard company, really paid off. He was doing really good business. He had a good life going for him. And according to uh, his wife in an article in the Salt Lake Tribune, George had a dread, strangely. When it came to the month of May, he had lost his father and almost every other family member in May of different years. Quote, he would always say, never let the children get sick in May. Be sure they are given special care, end quote. He wrote a postcard from Boise dated May 19th that read, quote, dear children, we'll see you soon. I'll be home Saturday, so stay well. I am staying at the hotel tonight. Hope you are going to the Ward Show Friday. Love to you all from Dad, end quote. Do you know what a Ward Show is? LDS Church is so different than, like, you know, when you go to, like, a a Presbyterian or a Protestant church, you would call it, like, the congregation. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what we would call a ward. And so I'm assuming there must have been some sort of, like, talent show. It's it's usually a a community. Usually um, it's around holidays, but sometimes you can just do them for get-togethers, and especially uh, in, you know, the 30s when and toward the end of the depression it's it's probably a cheap way to get everyone together and have a you know a night off of your normal activities and so i'm assuming that's what it is but i i i have never heard that term i'm just you know like we you know we don't use that term now but that's that's my best guess of what it is mm-hmm. that was my thought is that or yeah. maybe it was just a special friday and they were doing some sort of performance at the world yeah that- yeah that yeah, something. that they just basically were just getting together just to have, uh, you know, a night, a community, a night of community and, and entertainment uh, for the whole family, you know. So yeah. that would be, that's, yeah, I would guess that that's a good guess. And, you know, receiving postcards from, from George was pretty common for the, the family. Uh, wherever he traveled to, he'd try to send something. He would call almost every night. He's traveling with jewelry samples worth $2,000. And this is like during the depression, so that's uh, that's a lot that's a lot of money to be kind of packing around. And on May twenty first, George Olson didn't reach out to the family. Mm-hmm. His wife was immediately concerned and actually phoned the police. Three days later, on May twenty fourth, nineteen thirty eight, George Olson's body was found quote jammed between the front and back seats and locked in his car by the Park Hotel. End quote. 
It was normal for vehicles to remain parked in the same place for several days at the Park Hotel, but authorities were alerted to this blue Ford sedan when hotel employees noticed the smell from the side of the building. Oh no. It was wretched. Uh, in one account, they said you could smell it from like 50 feet. And uh, uh, one visitor man. noted the gas cap had been taken off of the vehicle, and he thought he had heard somebody siphoning off some of the gas a few nights before. It seemed like a suspicious thing going on, and when police finally come to investigate, they find George had been shot to death by a 22 caliber bullet found lodged in the base of the skull. The bullet severed his spinal column. He was laid face down in the vehicle between the front and back seats, so his head over the the front end and his, his face kind of in the back seat. Uh, mm-hmm. An old piece of canvas was draped over his body and stuffed between the seats. His Oof. pockets were turned inside out as the killer appeared to attempt to rob him, but officers still found $45 on his body. Blood was spattered across the front seat and had dripped into the carpet. Spots of blood were found all around the vehicle, which detectives later noted were from flies landing on the body and, oh, uh, no. and then trying to get out of the vehicle. When the body was removed, a copy of a pulp detective magazine was actually found beneath his body. And you can actually see a photos of this bloody crime scene and the body in, in newspapers and magazines. It's, it is mm-hmm. not, not a pretty scene, even in yeah. like a, you know, black and white on a, in a newspaper. Ugh. Authorities immediately, they start to investigate and track his movements and noted that he had checked out of the Rogerson Hotel in Logan, Utah, Saturday morning, left a watch to be repaired at the Evans Jewelry Company, and then visited Duncan Johnston's jewelry shop in Twin Falls. And that was about noon that day. And due to the position George was placed and the decomposition for two days, it was difficult for authorities to identify him because he was kind of face down. Duncan Johnston, as presumably one of the last people to see him, was actually brought in to help identify the body. Duncan stated that George left samples of jewelry with him since he would be returning shortly to collect them. And so Duncan said he became worried when George didn't return after three days. The last man to see him alive, of course, is Duncan. The first suspect was actually John W. Deering, a 37-year-old ex-convict out of California who had spent 20 years in Folsom at San Quentin and was described as a dope addict and a known gunman. He was suspected of another murder of a man named Oliver Meredith Jr., who was shot in the back of the head while in his parked car late at night as he was putting this vehicle away, and authorities tried to match the, quote, strange, end quote, fingerprints found on George Olson's vehicle, but made no match to John Deering. Um, John Deering, he was actually still arrested in Detroit, Michigan as a suspect in a holdup there, and he actually confessed to authorities that he killed Meredith, the old man backing up his car, stating, quote, I didn't mean to kill him, but any rat that would shoot a harmless old fellow deserves to die. It's the least I can do. I'm ready. I hope they can make it fast, end quote. And he's referring to the death sentence that he received. And actually, on Halloween, October 31st, 1938, he was read his death warrant, strapped to a high-backed wooden chair, and five men aimed their rifles at him. One gun actually had a blank, and the other four had bullets that tore into this killer's chest. He 
never admitted to killing the jeweler George Olson in Twin Falls. So, so I guess, sorry, why is he a suspect? Just because he had the, he was at the locate. Like, I don't understand. Yeah, yeah. So he had been released, and in the newspaper articles, this was one of those things that I tracked for like probably two hours, just like trying to piece it all mm. together. And then I finally found like the end part and was like, oh my gosh, all that work, you know, that rabbit hole when you get to the end of it, and you're like, that was not worth it. They suspected that he had boarded a train that went like went through Nevada and then passed through Twin Falls that he had basically hopped a train. There was an account that he had a similar caliber gun, but it, it wasn't. It was a different caliber revolver that he was using. Basically nothing nothing led to it, but because of yeah. his proximity to okay. uh, traveling through at that time what they suspected, uh, that's why they tried to pinpoint everything at him. It yeah. seems weak, but I guess you were trying to figure out who did it, and the, there's a possibility, so. That was it, yeah, yeah. I remember just being like, oh my gosh, what? You know, like, you spent all that time trying to track down this guy and printing all these news reports for everybody to be on the lookout for John Deering, and and then uh, he's not connected at all. It was basically, you know, kind of a tri-state crime spree that he was involved in, or they suspected, but he wasn't actually involved in any in Idaho, so. Twin Falls Police Chief Gillette had an inkling that Duncan Johnston may be connected to George Olson's death. And Duncan was taken in for questioning and revealed all of his dealings with the Decker Jewelry Company in the past and his interactions with George on May 20th and 21st, the last day George was seen alive. At 4 a.m., the chief actually entered Duncan's basement, a space shared with a neighboring hat and garment shop. And they found a long narrow concrete walk along this gravel basement floor with a recess between the floor and the ceiling above in the basement and this this little recess it actually had a towel and it was stuffed with 557 diamond rings valued at $15,000 with price tags bearing the Decker Jewelry Company name Uh-oh. yeah so the discovery of this recess and the diamonds would be disputed by the defense later on in trial. Why did officers know exactly where to look for these diamonds? The officer who discovered it, Officer Winterholder, actually testified that he was looking for a space to hide a dictaphone to secretly record conversations in Duncan's jewelry shop upstairs. So basically a little recording unit they could stick a microphone and listen to what was going on and what duncan and and william his assistant were talking about upstairs and that's when they discovered this officer craig bracken was actually posted in the basement for 24 hours he hid he hid in the basement and officers actually hatched this plan. They were going to arrest William Lavond and his dog as they walked through the park towards the jewelry store the next morning. And then they were going to call Duncan and imitate William's voice to get him to run downstairs to the cache of George's jewelry, which they had not revealed that they had discovered. Now, the plan was hatched. And what? On... I know. I what? know. Like, right? Is this? I... Okay. All right. I think they were trying to be too clever for their own good, which we, yeah, we've they, they, seen a couple times in different cases. <laughs> it feels like they were trying to be too, like, Hollywood almost. Like, oh, wouldn't it be so cool if we catch him in this, like, funky way? Like, just, right. I don't understand. Okay, all right. We'll keep going. <laughs> so, June 2nd, the plan is going. 
Early in the morning, William Levon is arrested walking his dog through the park, heading towards the jewelry shop to open it up. Duncan Johnston is actually already at the jewelry shop, and he actually goes to the basement, and the officer watches him secretly as Duncan kind of looks around, and he stares at this large puddle of water in the cement sidewalk near a broken space in the cement. Duncan kind of stares off at this for a few moments and then turns and goes back upstairs into the shop. Officer Bracken actually comes out of his hiding space and investigates this little broken spot and found another towel containing the key ring with George Olson's car keys, some of the deceased man's watches, a 25 caliber Colt automatic pistol. So Officer Bracken, he finds these, he stuffs them back in, he runs back to his hiding space, and he sits and continues to wait. And Duncan actually returns a couple minutes later and starts studying the wet spot in the basement again. And at this point, the officer emerges from his hiding place, and Duncan actually apprehends the police officer. He's like, what are you doing in my basement? And and tries to, like, you know, arrest this officer. But the tables turn, and Duncan is placed under arrest and taken to jail where Williams was waiting. Wait, okay, so sorry. Can you Can you explain... The, the spot, the wet spot, it was like a spot in the floor? Yeah, it was like a, a hole in the floor. And that they just described it as like a puddle. So I don't know if it had rained and the water was pouring into this like this little but, hole. But all of the incriminating evidence was just in this open hole. Yes. It was covered <laughs> in gravel and water. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But this. Right. Mm, exactly. Okay. All right. Doesn't this all just feel like... This just sounds insane. (laughs) So, of course, as soon as he's arrested on June 2nd, newspapers have a heyday. I found headlines all over. Former Idaho mayor held in gem murder case, like Mm ex-mayor charged with murder and all these different Mm -hmm. things. So so during this time, uh, a nearly indecipherable note actually arrives at the Salt Lake Jewelry Store, and it tells Wayne Decker, who owns that store, to investigate Duncan's jewelry shop basement. So he phones the police. Duncan was actually granted an interview with the press two days later while he's in the Twin Falls County Jail, and he told the United Press journalists that he was completely innocent, did not know anything about the crime except what he read in the newspapers. And during the interview, he actually played with the jail mascot. This was just too cute to not include. They, uh, the, a baby bobcat had been captured uh, nearby oh. in Twin Falls. And so it was just like living in the jail, this little baby bobcat. Quote, he watched a deputy wind up a mechanical doll, place it before the bobcat, and laughed heartily while the small animal, growling ferociously, sprang upon the toy and batted it around the floor, end quote. So Duncan is just like in this cell, like playing with his baby bobcat, reading Life and Tragedy in the Blue Mountains. He tells journalists, one of his last quotes is, quote, there's some dirty politics mixed up in this somewhere, end quote. Hmm. So he's got an inkling that, like, they're out to get me for something, or at least that's what he's putting on. Sure. On June 6th, Duncan and his assistant, William, were formally charged with murder in the first degree. Right around that time, Duncan actually sells the jewelry store to Don Kugler, an Idaho Falls jewelry salesman who owned many of these jewelry businesses throughout the state of Idaho. And Don took on the Decker Company's chattel mortgage from Duncan. 
And a week later, one of George Olson's bowling friends named R. Vern McCullough arrived in Twin Falls with Wayne Decker, head of the Salt Lake Jewelry Company. And McCullough actually happens to be this prominent, but kind of, uh, he just not the most reputable. And he actually gets disbarred after this. Strangely, William LaVond, Duncan's assistant, is released on a habeas corpus, and he's actually never tried for this crime. So he's released. Duncan is in the county jail. He's not given a bond to be released, and he actually stated that he lacked the funds to defend himself. And so he was appointed court attorneys E.L. Rayborn and E.V. Larson. Uh, On November 14th, he actually pleads not guilty. And about two weeks later, the trial began on November 30th, 1938. The courtroom, as you may imagine, was packed. They always said at capacity. Uh, Newspapermen noted that Virginia, the, quote, attractive wife of the accused former mayor and jeweler, end quote, was tense in the courtroom, but showed little emotion at the adjourning of the hearing. And the prosecution had three main points of testimony. First, the discovery of the pistol wrapped in the towel in the basement. Second, the discovery of an envelope with Johnston's Jewelry Store printed on the front with a $450 diamond ring and a $30 wedding ring belonging to the Decker Company inside. Third, testimony from the shop owner next door, Miss Eva Keys, who told authorities that she heard William LeVon's voice in the basement of the building on the night of George Olson's disappearance later than what William told police he was there. And uh, other pieces of evidence included uh, check-in sheets from the Park Hotel, George Olson's car, a padlock on the alley entrance to the Johnston basement, pieces of steel found by police and ashes of the basement furnace, and a watch belonging to the Decker Jewelry Company. The prosecution took up the first few days of court making a case against Duncan Johnston. Chief Gillette took the stand and reiterated the state's exhibits that connected Duncan. Letters were also brought into the trial that were dated May 25th, written in pencil, and sent to the Decker Jewelry Store in Salt Lake. So this is that letter I was telling you that arrived there. One from Twin Falls resident R.H. Mills stated, quote, I am sure it will pay you to investigate the Johnston jewelry very closely, especially to back room around the alley door. They might be lots of evidence there. There might be some evidence at the Johnston home. I am sure the jewelry can be found. Maybe not in Twin Falls, but at other Heidos cities. Non-day, one may answer letter, end quote. <laughs> uh, the uh, actually other letter um, came from Miss Geraldine LeBlanc, and it said, quote, I believe I have a slight clue as to who could have had a hand in the murder. Of course, this is just a clue. I believe the police here have no thought of. If you should wish me to help you, do not notify police here. But maybe if I could come to you and lay my plan, you could wire me expenses here, and I will come to you to help you. So, mm. bye and see me at once, end quote. Right, so these, these two letters that just, like, right away arrived that say, uh, Duncan Johnston did it. Oh, it's very strange. <laughs> but I won't come see you. You come see me, and I'll explain everything, and also make right. sure you give me money first. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> very strange. So, yeah. The trial actually covers Duncan's movements, including meeting with former state representative Kavanaugh, the meeting of George's disappearance, uh, fixing a watch band that night, and purchasing 20 copies of the Idaho Evening Times that had some political notes that he wanted to share and, and keep track of. 
um, a pharmacist was examined and actually noted that Duncan went to him after identifying George Olson's body, and he received some, quote, nerve medicine, end quote, to calm his nerves. And Duncan returned shortly after, taking a single capsule, and he was even more nervous and in a state of anxiety. And so this uh, pharmacist actually gave him like four more capsules, which he took so he can go home and go to sleep after seeing this dead body of his old friend and, you know, business associate. So FBI ballistics experts were actually tested Duncan's weapon and testified that they couldn't determine for sure that the bullet found in George's head was fired from Duncan's gun. Twin Falls police captain Sweeney, he actually stated that he had nearly 40 years of experience in ballistics and stated, quote, I was unable to conclude that the evidence bullet came from the gun in evidence. I did determine that the shell reported found in the Olsen car had been fired in the evidence gun, end quote. And they talked about this little pistol being so old and worn down, and it was a surprise that it could fire at all. Despite attempts to match fingerprint evidence, the state actually never presented any fingerprints during this entire trial. It's almost all circumstantial. When the defense took the stand, witnesses testified seeing George Olson actually at the fair the evening of May 21st. Two hotel workers testified seeing George Olson a week prior under the influence of liquor or some sort of drug. And Duncan actually took the stand and stated that George was trying to sell off hot stuff or stolen jewelry in an auction. And so he, he was saying, like, this guy wasn't as clean cut and good as everybody's saying he, he oh. was. The owner of the Italian Gardens restaurant actually testified that he saw George Olson on numerous occasions and often with uh, young girls and young women for dinner. And the oh, owner, no. Yeah. The owner actually purchased an engagement and a wedding ring, which he paid for by serving meals to George at this restaurant. So... Uh, basically so he's like like, a regular yeah yeah uh and this is the worst part the husband and wife who rented out cabins at the twin falls tourist park actually testified that they rented a cabin to george on may 13th and uh he tried again on the 14th and he rented it between six and eight o'clock with one woman the first day on the 13th no but on the second day they refused to rent the room to him because he brought in a second girl who looked to be quote 17 years old quote oh no that is horrible yeah i mean it's bad enough to be like bringing multiple i mean i i don't want to judge anyone for their their choices in life unless you are trying to fornicate with a teenager that is horrific Okay. All right. Mm, Okay. If if this is all made up, (sighs) if they are all just trying to defame his name, like this is that's horrible. Uh, But yes, but it's so it seems unlikely that all of them would be defaming separately. You know what I mean? Like, right? Why would the owner of or the waiter at the Italian restaurant and the owner of this uh, these cabins both be conspiring to like defame him? You know. Former mayor, good guy, Duncan Johnston. Oh, for Duncan, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Right, that's that's my only thought. Is like, well, maybe maybe he's got them on being paid off to to support his case, but you know, 
the widow of George Olson is in the courtroom and she, quote, collapsed in the arms of her mother-in-law, end quote, after hearing all of this testimony. I mean, just uh, oh, the, the strain mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. she must be going through with her right. young kids. She's yeah. lost her husband. And now people are like saying all this negative stuff about her husband that she, you know, what? How are you supposed to believe that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, tensions. Oof. Yeah. Not great anywhere. This is an 11-day trial, and both sides give their final statements, and the prosecution gave a final two-hour statement. And Edward Babcock, uh, the attorney, actually ended with, quote, I ask you to give this defendant just as much consideration as he gave George Olson when he shot him in the back of the neck, and just as much consideration as he gave Mrs. Olson and her three little kids, end quote. So some powerful words for the jury to you know, chew mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. as they go out into deliberation. And they go on December 9th, 1938. Mm. Eight hours and seven minutes later, they return on December 10th, 1938. Duncan McDougal Johnston is found guilty of murder in the first degree at 12.27 a.m. The jury actually recommended Duncan be spared execution in place of a life sentence. And after the verdict was read, Duncan said, that's okay, end quote. And he appeared kind of red in the face, but he walked out of the courtroom with a smile, and he was sentenced four days later on December 14th to life in prison, quote, at hard labor, end quote, at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Mm. He was given about half an hour to, to say his goodbyes to his wife and to his son and to his relatives, his family and friends before he is put into the car and driven out to Boise. Right away, his lawyers are instantly appealing the conviction and calling for a new trial. Duncan, of course, was well-connected, and when he arrived at the prison, he said, quote, Hello, Pearl, end quote, and held out his hand to Warden Pearl Meredith, who shook his hand and kind of helped him out of the car. Quote, Johnston did not appear depressed. He seemed pleased to see his longtime friend, the warden. I don't expect to be here very long. My conscience is clear, and I expect to be exonerated of this charge. End quote. That's what he says. Uh, mm-hmm. Duncan actually chatted with the warden as he donned his new prison clothes and was processed in the system. And the warden told reporters that Duncan, quote, will not be given yard privileges for a few days until after we find out how the other inmates are taking his conviction, end quote. Now, notes from the prosecuting attorney broke down the case. He said that he thought Duncan was, quote, industrious but not frugal, end quote. He also thought that Duncan was a, quote, menace to society, end quote, which is just so fascinating from everything (laughs) I've started this episode with. Right. His intake, Duncan McDougall Johnson Jr., age 40, born October 17th, 1898, nativity, Butte, Montana, occupation, jeweler, color, white, complexion, medium, weight, 137 pounds, build, medium, residence, Twin Falls, Idaho, hair, grayish blonde, but he's bald on top, his eyes are blue, his nose was prominent, his ears were close set. His chin was rounded. Remarks, his teeth, upper plate, lower partial plaits, it says. Bertion was actually taken the next day on December 15th. And it shows a birthmark located on his right rib and his back left shoulder blade, 
a vaccination scar on his left arm, a half-moon scar on his left knee, a wound scar near the back of his left armpit, a bullet scar that entered the lower center of his back and appeared to emerge below his left buttock, and a bite scar on the back of his right knee. What? Uh, I think these are all like war wounds. Oh, the bite is Um, interesting. I tried to like pinpoint that. I could Hmm. not find it. Okay. So, of course, immediately, Duncan's friends in Twin Falls, they began collecting a fund to pay for new counsel for him. His court-appointed attorneys just weren't quite doing it for him. So W.L. Dunn and T.M. Robertson Jr. were actually hired and began uh, filing for this, uh, this new appeal and took over the case. And in December of 1938, attorneys argued for over two hours in district court for a new trial, stating that state's evidence did not show proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Duncan was guilty. The judge denied the motion, and they turned to the state's Supreme Court. Duncan was actually released on February 14, 1940, on a court order and taken to the sheriff's office in Twin Falls. He was tried again on March 25th. The case was brought up for trial again, and the two years since the trial first took place, prosecuting attorney Edward Babcock was actually appointed special prosecutor and then attorney general, so he wasn't on the case anymore. On April 10, 1940, the jury returned with a verdict, once again finding Duncan Johnston guilty of murder in the first degree. Now, judgment of the conviction was entered, and Duncan's attorney filed for an appeal. And Duncan remained in the Twin Falls County Jail until the Supreme Court affirmed the judgment of the trial court in February 1941. Now, applications for rehearing was made, and the case was reargued again on June 4, 1941. The decision was once again upheld, and two days later, Duncan Johnston returned to the Idaho State Penitentiary to serve out his life sentence. So this is under his new number, which is 6383, which I thought was kind of kind of interesting. Gilbert Talley, we all know that. He's actually warden when um, Duncan returns on June 6, 1941, and he does his Bertillon and his intake papers once again, and he notes that he's bald and has blue eyes, a mole on his front right rib, two vaccination scars, a small scar on the back of his neck, a small scar on the back of his right knee, and a gunshot wound in his lower left back. On November 29, 1941, Duncan files an application for pardon, one of many that he would file, and he was denied, but he continued to assert his innocence. On December 20th, 1942, Duncan was actually made a trustee and living outside the walls working as a trustee in the pump house, and Deputy Warden Paris O'Neill was doing rounds and discovered Duncan's bed in the pump house was empty. Duncan had escaped. Not for long, though. He just basically went downtown, had a couple drinks, enjoyed the night, and then he returned early the next morning and turned himself back in, and he was taken to solitary confinement. Um, It didn't document how long he was in there, but he was probably placed in the cooler or Siberia, I'm guessing, for about 30 days for this. Over the course of several years, uh, lots of new information regarding the case came to light. Duncan laid out a convincing letter to the Board of Pardons laying out these points. One interesting piece uh, is that many of the officers that took the stand against Duncan received valuable gifts from Wayne Decker and George Olson's attorney friend. During the trial, William Levon was never allowed to be called as a witness, even though he was never set to trial or, or tried at all or convicted. 
Uh, it was also noted by the prosecution that Duncan may not have been the one to fire the gun, but because he may or may not know who had done it, that's what they were hinging their their belief that he should be convicted for it. How is this beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed murder in the first degree? So there's this great quote. The state was after a conviction only, and not after the truth and the solution of the crime. I implore you to study these facts and decide who has tried to discredit the courts and destroy valuable clues which would have prevented this terrible mistake. Since the courts are now closed to me, the people look to you, who have the full responsibility to correct the mistake insofar as it is possible ever to correct it. In view of the above truths, the general doubt of my guilt, and the unalterable fact that I am innocent, I respectfully plead for release from prison." End quote. Right around this time, that several letters for and against Duncan's release arrive at the parole board. Um, Duncan wrote to the board again on April 1st, requesting a release, opening with the line, quote, I am innocent. From the day of my arrest, I have asked only for justice, never mercy, end quote. He actually gets a little more aggressive when he states, quote, The fact that I have officially convicted can never make me a murderer. Though you are free men and I am a convict, you are every bit as guilty of redacted death as I am because someone scattered evidence over my premises to be found because a private citizen from another state came in and pointed suspicions towards me before a single item of that evidence has been discovered and because certain officials were unable or unwilling to correct his mistakes and direct the suspicion where it belonged i am condemned to life in prison and branded as a murderer every month of official hesitation sinks the brand deeper end quote oh I just thought that was like, what a great, interesting phrase. Every month of official hesitation sinks this brand deeper. So he kind of continues by noting he witnessed all these people who had actually confessed to murders being pardoned every year from the prison. So why, why is he still needing to remain there on the circumstantial evidence? A quote, lay citizen, end quote, named Norman Wood actually wrote on behalf of Duncan in this really great letter that just talks about how the whole trial was slimy and uh, he thought the whole thing was a frame-up job against the former mayor. So interesting letters written on his behalf. Finally, on August 5th, 1943, a hearing was held in Twin Falls and several witnesses were subpoenaed, including jurors from the original trials, and several were asked who they thought fired the fatal shot. Most said they thought it could have been Duncan or an associate. They weren't certain, Mm. which that's not good. The attorney general on the board of pardons, uh, his name was Burt Miller, he actually wrote, of these interviews, quote, it is reasonably safe to assume that very few, if any, of those closely connected with the trial ever believed that Johnston fired a f- the fatal shot. The evidence tending to convict Johnston with the crime charged is entirely circumstantial, and there is abundant grounds for believing that some, at least, of the jurors were of the opinion that someone other than Johnston did the actual killing. Accordingly, the guilt of Johnston is not established by that full measure of proof the law requires, end quote. So, I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the Attorney General of Idaho is saying this. Uh, Duncan, of course, soon after, is granted an unconditional pardon, effective January 6th, 1944. 
So he spends about five years in prison and pretty much the entire time fighting this conviction. And uh, Idaho Statesman journalist was there and actually snaps a photo of him leaving. You could see him coming out of the turnkey area in the old pen. Yeah, I remember that picture. And there's a quote, I'm a free man now. Those bars are behind me, end quote. And he was very upset at this journalist for snapping this photo of him. Mm -hmm. So Duncan is released. And honestly, the next couple of years, I'm not entirely sure uh, what he was doing. Junkin's story, it was obviously popular for true crime writers. May 22nd, 1950, Warden Lou Clapp wrote a letter to Joseph Corona, who was the managing editor of the True Detective magazine in New York City. And he wrote that Duncan was released in 1944, noted, quote, It is true that Johnston, after conviction at his first trial, did receive a second trial on a technicality, and the decision as reached in the first trial was upheld, end quote. But he said, you know, honestly, I don't know where he's at, and he was released unconditionally. So, yep, unless he gets in trouble, I'm not going to know anything about him, essentially. Uh, A letter arrived for Lou Clapp again during the summer of 1963 asking about Duncan's whereabouts, and it came from the Hallart House publisher of Port Chester, New York, and they wondered if Duncan was still alive and in custody. And uh, they actually published the true crime magazine Police Detective Yearbook. And uh, September 9th, 63, Clapp responded, listing all of the dates of Duncan's trials and releases and noted at that time, quote, I have no knowledge of his present whereabouts, end quote. Now, I did. It took me a long time, but I found Duncan in Virginia living and working at the Alcazar Jewelers on 650 Geary Street in San Francisco, California. Hmm. So he, he went to the Bay Area. He's like, you know what? I'm getting out of landlocked Idaho. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say, though, is like, I probably couldn't find anything on him after he was released because I would want to be laying low as well and getting out of this place that they had just, you know, what seems like completely framed me for murder. Yeah, I would be wanting to get out as well. So can't blame him there. And San Francisco's lovely. It's so lovely, yeah. I I found it super interesting that he got right back into the jewelry business and, like, started up another jewelry shop. Is it, like, the only thing he knows, though, probably, right? And it's probably good money. Yeah, that's it. It's probably, you know, he's got the connections. And, yeah, yeah, that's probably the the hardest part. (laughs) Trust and connections. Yep. The Alcazar Jewelers uh, was an offshoot of this beautiful, this ornate theater, uh, the Alcazar Theater, which, I mean, it's part of like the Islam Shriners Temple. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's this beautiful, intricate, exotic features and architecture. And it's, uh, you know, Geary and Post Streets, Leavenworth and Jones Streets, kind of that area. And it was super popular, uh, this this theater, but it fell off on hard times during the Great Depression. And then in 45, it became one of the main meeting spaces for the United States Peace Conference and the United Nations Theater. So, like, this is probably about the time that Duncan is actually in San Francisco, that the United Nations Peace Conference is going on next door in this theater. And in 52, it was renamed the Alcazar Theater, and I found... Uh, Duncan, actually the victim of several crimes while he ran this this shop. Um, In September of 1947, this thief snatched three valuable diamond rings from his shop, 
jumped into a waiting vehicle on the street and escaped. I, I couldn't find if they were ever recaptured. In 1951, this elderly woman named Blanche Sternheim actually entered Duncan's shop and requested help to fix this clasp on her purse. And Duncan took the bag to a station. He quickly fixed it and returned it to this woman at no charge. And she was just so taken by this, by his kindness and uh, everything, that she he wouldn't charge her, all this stuff. So she actually started to return regularly at the shop. She lived in the uh, California Hotel. And she would come and hang out with the Johnstons, and they would go to dinners. He would take her around, driving around for several hours. Just became really good friends with Blanche Sternheim. So that all starts in about 1951. In 1953, the famous stuttering comedian Joe Frisco, do you know him? I don't, uh, I've heard the name, but I couldn't tell you really anything about him. He went into Duncan's jewelry shop and purchased two diamonds that Duncan installed into his front teeth of his oh. upper plate. Quote, now at last I've got a sparkling smile, end quote. Wait, that was the wait, quote wait, wait. Duncan Fisco. installed them? Yeah. That's, Is he that's a dentist what, now? I guess so. Well, I think it was just that he was missing, you know, when the diamonds fall out of your teeth. You had to go and get oh, them restocked in there. I, what am I thinking? Yeah. That happens to me all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You can actually get um, basically teeth jewelry um, that some, some, there's a, tattoo shop in Dallas that they did piercings and tattoos and they did I can't remember what the term is but basically you can just get like jewels on your teeth so (sighs) so I guess it's just been around forever I guess so I honestly I was looking trying to look up Joe Frisco photos if I could see these diamond studded teeth of his but I could not Hmm. I couldn't find any examples if I find them I'll post them to the Facebook because that's just like wow that's so cool that he's like hobnobbing with you know these famous comedians and and people of the big screen so 1965 duncan again is robbed at gunpoint this uh gentleman who had come in a day before put down a 15 dollars deposit on a ring uh he returns the next day with a partner who happens to be holding a gun and he tells duncan quote i'll take the ring now plus my deposit end quote they actually tape his hands behind his back and strap him to a chair and they tape his mouth shut. And then they, they steal these four diamond rings worth $6,000. And then, you know, they're getting a little bit uh, greedy. And they reach into the showroom window to take more. And the alarm goes off. And so they dart out the door. And Duncan actually hops from his chair in the back room all the way to the front window to attract the attention of passersby who actually release him. And they call the police. So, you know, this guy, he's had thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars stolen from him at this new jewelry shop but in 1966 duncan quite literally hits the jackpot remember blanche sternheim oh yes 1951 i think she was four foot eleven is what they all said 80 pounds or something like that this tiny little old lady she is found on may 21st 1966 86 years old she's found dead in her hotel room a plastic bag was over her head and shoulders. What? And next to her was a will stating $5,000 was to go to an old friend and the rest over a million dollars to oh. Duncan Johnston. That is the dream. It's the dream. You just befriend an old lady that you're just like, she just, she's just a little lonely. And then she's <laughs> a millionaire. 
Right. Yeah. Oh, good for him. Right. So be kind to people that that not just because you should just be kind to people, but you just never know how much money people have. Just kidding. You should just be nice to them because you're a good person. Uh, yeah, you did hear the part about a plastic bag was over her head, right? I I did. I'm assuming though that the because the will is next to her, it wasn't foul play. But it it is. I hope. I mean, yeah. it, it is not a pleasant way to go. I don't think. Yeah. So she, of course, came from tremendous wealth in San Francisco right. and had no heirs. And uh, the coroner's office did list her death as a suicide originally. And mm, police started originally. to look. Yeah, they reopened this case. And okay. Duncan Johnston was back in the news. His previous uh, incarceration, oh, no. his murder trial, his time <laughs> oh, in prison. No. Everything is printed in these California newspapers. They actually investigate. And she had actually written a, another will back in 1958, which talked about, like, she wanted all of her paintings left with one friend, her ivory collection, and a small money gifts to other oh. friends. Uh, she called for her estate to go to to charity, and a fifth of it was to go to guide dogs for the blind of San Rafael, which I thought was so sweet. Oh. And she wanted to open up the rest for this charitable giving that the executor would decide. And she wanted to create a perpetual fund to open in her name, plus a $1,000 bequest to the Mechanics Institute and Library, where she loved to check out her books. Uh, she also bequeathed $25,000 to the Johnstons. So she did give him $25,000 in her 1958 will. But the new will next to her, her deceased body that day, read, quote, I give and bequeath to Esther and Duncan Johnston, husband and wife of 775 Geary Street, all my worldly possessions and all monies in Wells Fargo Bank. I guess first, uh, did you say Esther Johnson? Right, yes. So this is the other thing. I could not find if Virginia, if she passed away, did they get divorced? I do not know what happened to Virginia. Okay, okay. So second thing is I take back what I said. And, um, I mean, it's all circumstantial as of right now, and we all know what happened last time. It was just circumstantial evidence, but it's not looking good for him that she had, like, (laughs) written this will that, like, had all these really nice charities, and she just was being such a lovely person, and then all of a sudden everything goes to him. So, yes, I I take it back. Though I I still, I stand by the fact that it is a dream to befriend someone who secretly is a (laughs) multimillionaire. That is true. That is true. I'm with you there. Uh, yeah, like, again, I was, I was like rooting for Duncan. I felt like, oh, man. And then for this to happen, it was just like, oh, my gosh. The police investigated a whole year. They could not pin him on anything. And so Duncan received the money a year later. Mm. He left town, quote, for a good long vacation, end quote. And I couldn't find anything else about him except for on Ancestry where it listed his death as April 16th, 1989 in San Mateo, California. So that is Duncan McDougal Johnston Jr. And, 
Oh my gosh. I feel like there's still so much more that I could go into. And that was not at all what I thought it was. And then just that twist at the end, I <sighs> am flabbergasted. I do not know where I stand on this man. That is what happened to me. That's what I've been like. There has to be something I'm missing here. And I, oh my gosh, if Man. anybody wants to take the torch and <laughs> please do, because I, I Good can't luck do more. is what I say to you. Like 500 pages of research on this man and everything he was involved with. And I just, I still... Man, Sky, it's good to be back. That's all I can say. It's, it's so good, to be, good back. to be back. It's so good to be stuck <laughs> on these rabbit holes and be like, I'm going to tear my hair out unless I figure this out. Exactly. Um, so happy it. to be back doing that. <laughs> so well done. That was fascinating. I I am so fascinated by his story. Oh, thanks, Sky. Yeah. Ooh, thank you, everybody. Yeah. If you made it to this point, thank you. And if you know any of the whereabouts of Duncan Johnston, please, I, like, I just gotta know. To learn more about the Old Idaho Penitentiary, please follow Old Idaho Penitentiary on Facebook and Instagram. There you can buy tickets for entry, find updates about events, the online gift shop, and other exciting things about the site. If you'd like to know more about the Idaho State Historical Society and other historical sites, please visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com. So, today I am talking about number 8170, Alwilda Reams, who also holds the distinction of being the youngest female inmate who ever served in the women's ward. Yeah. So my sources are her inmate file, uh, newspapers.com articles, ancestry.com articles, craters of the moon on nps.org and nationalparks.org, darksky.org, and Wikipedia on the U.S. highway system and craters of the moon. And also, if you're interested um, in last year's 2021's 13 Stories event, so um, a group of filmmakers uh, from Parallel Worlds Productions uh, made a short film about All Wilda called Wilda, and if you watch it, you will see someone very familiar uh, <laughs> who makes <laughs> who makes um, is a talking head in it. Um, so watch that to find out who that might be. So, so you're famous guy. Uh, it's me. It's me. It's me. Uh, <laughs> I'm not famous, but it was a really, really fun time. I think the filmmakers did a wonderful job at um, sort of encapsulating uh, the emotions of the story. And I was honored to be asked to do it. And it was so much fun. And it really gave me uh, a big head because now I want to do that kind of stuff all the time. Oh, it was great. It was so fun. So anyway, here's the full story, and then go and watch the the Wilda short film, and and enjoy sort of the the visual, you know, what this event uh, might have looked like. So, and also, if you are interested in our other thirteen stories films, we just had our other premiere in September of of this year, and so there are nine new films as well, including some of stories that you've heard right here on the podcast. 
Yeah, they're super fun. There'll be three years worth of 13 story short films to watch and highly recommend local filmmakers, you know, telling cool stories. So anyway, on that off that soapbox, um, back to uh, Alwilda. So she was born on January 11th, 1936 to Leroy, who sometimes went by the name Roy and Sarah Lovey or Lova, L-O-V-A, Reams. Records state that Alwilda was born in Wright, Minnesota, but one thing that I really found is that her childhood is very scattered. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And so there's kind of a lot of contradicting of evidence uh, from different people. So if I start explaining it and you're like, none of this makes sense, please let me know. Again, record state she was born in Wright, Minnesota, but it could be Wright County, Minnesota, because a paternal aunt claims that she was born in Dayton, Minnesota, which is partially in Wright County, because Wright, Minnesota, the city, is way further north than Dayton. So she was born in Minnesota. Just just say that. Um, we know very little about her parents, especially her mother. Uh, I, I think her maiden name was Lovey, but there were also records that said it was L-O-V-A, Lova. So there's just a big gap in her story in that regard. But Leroy was a native-born Minnesotan who served in World War I. He actually saw service at the Meuse-Argonne battle, which was the last offensive front during World War I. So it went from September uh, 1918 to the armistice in November. Um, and that is according to the Knoxville Journal article, which was from 1951. The Knoxville Journal had uh, a big write-up about Leroy and his early life. As I start to explain what was in this article, you may want to start taking it with a grain of salt and and you'll see um, why that is. Leroy also worked as a private detective in the Midwest, uh, supposedly working for the governor of Nebraska at one point. And per the Times News, which was a Twin Falls newspaper, Alwilda actually said that he is at one point was the deputy U.S. Marshal in Nebraska. So Leroy kind of was all over the Midwest, you know, doing some probably some pretty cool things. Again, served in World War One. And according to the Knoxville Journal, Leroy and Sarah had a son prior to Alwilda who had died in infancy. I couldn't find any record of that. That is the only article that that fact appears in. But, you know, who is to see? I, I'm not sure if that's true or not. So on June 28th, 1936, when Alwilda is just six months old, her parents divorced in Benton, Arkansas. And I'm not sure why her parents were in Arkansas. Uh, her paternal aunt said that her father had a business in Arkansas, but didn't say what kind of business it was. But regardless of why they were there, her mother left her with her father and really had very little to do with Alwilda for uh, uh, her youth and, and for a lot of her life. In July 1936, Leroy took Alwilda to live with his older sister, Mabel, in Kildare, North Dakota. In 1943, when Alwilda was seven, Leroy took her to another sister back in Minnesota, whose name was also Alwilda. He took her there to go to school, but according to Mabel, her other aunt, the older Alwilda was in really poor health, and so they just returned the young Alwilda to Aunt Mabel, who then schooled her for the remainder of the year. And as I said, the rest of her youth is just really unclear. In 1945, she and her dad briefly went to Newport, Oregon, but their time there lasted less than a year. And after 1945, according to her aunt, quote, from that time on, she was taken from one school to another, never more than one year of schooling in one place, and sometimes would attend school one half year in one state and the other half in another state. She really never had a settled home, end quote. 
And so again, it's it's just really difficult to completely trace after their time in Newport. She may have spent half a year between 1946 or 1947 in Salties, Montana, and half a year in 1948 in Peoria, Arizona, but I don't have definitive dates or really any understanding as to why uh, they were kind of all over the place. But according to several reports, the reason that her youth was so insecure was probably because uh, Leroy was an itinerant worker. Uh, and this is, again, from the Knoxville Journal. He was, quote, always working, always paying his bills, sometimes drinking and talking too much about Alwilda. Now, that last point about always talking about Alwilda and, like, how great she was, it was probably really exaggerated. Uh, the Knoxville Journal, as I kind of have mentioned, was written to paint Leroy in a very, very positive light. And, in fact, by all reports, Leroy had a lot of trouble with his drinking, which may play a small part in what happens later. So because her youth was so insecure, she had very, very few secure relationships in her life. And you can see that this plays out in her real life relationships. And, and one thing that I thought was really interesting is because she never had anyone in her real life to sort of securely bond to, she enjoyed playing with dolls well past the age that girls usually stop playing with them. I think she found uh, some sort of comfort in them in that they didn't leave or, you know, she was able to take them with her. I thought that was a really interesting sort of insight into her psyche. Um mm-hmm. And, and in fact, after her arrest, it talks about how she still has a doll like with her and, and, and I don't want to say enjoys, but keeps dolls. So by the end of 1949, Leroy and Alwilda are living in Manhattan, Montana. And by all reports, their accommodations are incredibly modest, if almost squalid. And that's how, in fact, how some newspaper articles describe it as squalid. They lived in a small two-room cabin with no bathroom or outhouse and only the most basic furniture. The Manhattan undersheriff D.S. Skerritt called it, quote, a two-room chicken coop. The place contained no plumbing facilities and looked as if it had never been cleaned up. There was a bed and a cot in the place, and apparently both had been used, end quote. So she she completed eighth grade. She started ninth grade at Manhattan High, but stayed for only about six weeks. Prior to them living in Manhattan, this was something I didn't explain, uh, Leroy had actually moved to Manhattan first while Alwilda was living with her aunt in, in Minnesota. And so according to the Knoxville Journal, Leroy had hired two young men, Merle Carroll Williams, who was 25, and Jim Reynolds, who was 23, to help him get living conditions in order for when Alwilda came into town. And so Merle Williams served in the U.S. Navy during World War II. He went by the nickname Rusty, and Jim Reynolds had also served in the U.S. Navy. And after Alwilda came into town, you know, these men had helped her father set everything up, and they still kind of hung around. And so because Alwilda didn't have any really very many friends, she began spending more and more time with both of these young men who paid attention to her. And, and this is something that she probably isn't very used to, is, is getting some flattering attention and, 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 and really any attention. And so not only is she spending time with young men, but it seems that, that there is, of course, some romantic attraction growing, and especially towards Merle. Uh, 
And there are some reports that Merle was actually living with Alwilda and Leroy in their small two-bedroom, I don't know, just chicken coop, as, as uh, <laughs> Under Sheriff Scarrett called it. And the Manhattan Chief of Police, W.T. Governor, stated, quote, how all three slept, I do not know, end quote, which again intimates that Merle starts living with Alwilda and Leroy. And uh, the undersheriff, again, undersheriff Scarrett said, quote, from information received by this office, it appears that Redacted uh, lived with the Reams, end quote. And, uh, you know, Jim is a player in this, but you'll see in just a minute, he isn't really, and that Merle is more likely the one who was living with Alwilda and Leroy. So here's how this story really plays out according to the Knoxville Journal. Quote, Alwilda had just observed her 14th birthday when the men in the Stockman's bar began to josh Reams. You're going to get a son-in-law fast. If I find anyone molesting my daughter, I'll put a bullet through him, roared the father. I'm like the Mounties. I always get my man. Whoa. I know. <laughs> so gossip travels fast, and a few days later, when Alwilda is absent from school, Oliver H. Campbell, who is the school superintendent, calls Leroy and asks him uh, about the report that Alwilda's pregnant. You know, is this true or not? And Leroy reportedly replied, no, thank God, she's just got a sore throat, reported the father, but he became somewhat more watchful of his daughter. And when he saw that she, she seemed to prefer Reynolds over Williams, he ordered the young man to stay away from the cabin and never see Alwilda again. But taking a few extra drinks that night, the father got to worrying. He went to Constable William Tauber Tag Gover. Quote, Tag, I just want to warn you, I'm going to kill any man who harms a hair on my daughter's head. End quote, Reams threatened. Tag carried this threat along to Reynolds, adding that Reams said that if he, Reynolds, wasn't run out of town, he'd shoot him on sight. Jeez. Quote, I don't have any reason to leave town. I'll stay away from the girl, end quote, Reynolds vowed. And so, again, you know, take this all with a grain of salt, because not only is this article meant to paint Leroy in a really positive light, but it's also reported well over six months after Alwilda entered prison. And it's in Knoxville. Like, I just, that's the one thing that is really odd to me, is why in the world is the Knoxville Journal writing about this? But um, it, it gives a more complete story. So, you know, Reynolds says, I don't want to get shot. I'll stay away from her. Not a problem. And so, according to Alwilda, and, you know, somewhat close to what this story says, her father did prefer that she see Merle over Jim, but we don't know why that is. And so, because Jim is out of the way, Alwilda and Merle get so close that they are soon talking marriage. Now, just a reminder, Alwilda is 14, and uh, oh. Merle is 25. So... In the documents, a lot of the documents, the names are blacked out. They're redacted for privacy, and and especially because Alwilda was so young, um, there are names that are blacked out. Out of context, I think I know what the what the blanks are. Um, yeah. When you see the newspaper reports, you kind of know what those blanks are. But anyway, so this is in Alwilda's own words. Quote, Dad wouldn't give his consent for me to marry, although he did say he would consent to Merle Williams before he would consent for me to marry Jim Reynolds, but he wouldn't consent to my marrying anyone until I was of age. He wanted me to be sure when I got married. Dad spent a lot of money on me. I was always well-dressed, end quote. <laughs> and so this is Alwilda's admission that her dad did treat her pretty well, as well as he could, I think. But she later said that she felt her dad waited too long, basically, to keep her under control. And she said, quote, Dad was awful jealous of guys flirting with me. I was wild. He waited until I got too big and then tried to spank me, end quote. 
Jeez. So, despite Leroy treating her well, she did not really like being told no, especially when it comes to her and Merle. And so soon, she and Merle start having conversations about how to get around Leroy's rules. And so this is, again, all Wilda when asked about when they first started talking about how to get around the rules. Quote, In Maryland's cafe in Manhattan, Montana, about a week or two before we left Manhattan, Montana, Dad was in the Stockman's Bar and Cafe playing cards. Merle and I were figuring out ways to get rid of Dad. Merle first wanted me to run away with him. I had consented to. He said that if we could get across the Canadian line, Dad couldn't do anything about it. Then he discussed murdering Dad and taking him out to the Horseshoe Hills there in Montana and weighting his body down and putting him in the river, end quote. Wow. So this this probably seems like a pretty drastic step to, to saying, well, first, let's just run away to Canada and then let's murder him. And I think perhaps part of the reason there is a discussion of just cold-blooded murder is that there are a lot of rumors about the Reams in Manhattan, Montana. And... Um, According to the Knoxville Journal, quote, it was she, according to Elwilda's confession, who started the trouble by telling Williams falsely that her father had molested her, end quote. Now, there isn't any statement like that in the confession that we have in her file, so either this is in a confession that we don't have access to anymore, or this is not from her confession. And from the Manhattan, Montana undersheriff, quote, there is a lot of conjecture by neighbors as to what went on at the Reams home, but there is no evidence to sustain the conjecture, end quote. And in a different letter, he said, I heard rumors about redacted, but probably meaning Leroy and his daughter, but I do not think they could be proven, end quote. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems as if the rumors are not true just because there is an evidence. But if they were, there certainly is another reason for Merle to want to be rid of Leroy, that he is, you know, molesting the woman that he, the girl, frankly, that he is in love with. And I, I don't really think, though, that they needed that excuse in their minds. Um, I think they just wanted to be rid of him because he wouldn't let them get married when they wanted to. And so after all this rumor that Merle was staying at the house, Leroy puts his foot down and he says, you know, Alwilda and Merle, they're not allowed to stay in the house together alone. So anytime Leroy goes into town, Alwilda and Merle, it seems, would go to Marilyn's cafe. And it's here, as Alwilda mentioned, they really start to make plans. So again, in her own words, quote, Merle thought of this trip next. He was going to murder dad on the way. He talked about it several times in Marilyn's cafe. And this trip that she's referring to refers to a trip that Merle supposedly suggested moving from Manhattan, Montana to Oregon to find work somewhere. And it's unclear where Leroy originally stood on this decision, if it was Merle's idea or if it was Leroy's idea. But regardless of of whether he thought originally this was a good idea, he changed his mind. And that's because in early October 1950, Leroy was arrested and charged with indecent exposure. Oh, what? But it's not quite what it seems. So if you remember, you know, their two-room shack does not have toilet facilities and apparently no outhouse either. And so... One morning, Leroy is in an open field and he starts relieving himself when a school bus drives by. And so the driver reported Leroy to the police, but that charge was eventually dropped once the situation was explained. And according to the undersheriff, it doesn't appear that Leroy's arrest was the reason for leaving. But he, the undersheriff continued to say that the day before the trio left Manhattan, Leroy had told him he was planning to go to Butte, Montana, and work in the mines. He hadn't mentioned anything about going to Oregon. So while it seems that Leroy was none the wiser, Alwilda and Merle left Manhattan, Montana with a devious plan. 
but they brought Alwilda's dog, Pooch, with them as well. He can't leave the dog behind. And so according to all accounts, the trio's plan was to drive and then they would pull over to the side of the road and sleep in the car. And back in, in 1950, that probably would have taken about one to two days. On current highways, the trip would probably take about eight hours from Manhattan to Ontario, Oregon. And I'm not sure that Ontario is where they were going, but, you know, that's sort of the, the first big point in Oregon. So even if you're going further in, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 hours. So now you would take I-90 West to I-15 South and then to US-20 West, but I-90 would not be finished until 1956 and I-15 would not open until 1965. So the trio would have had to take US-10, maybe US-20, there are two that kind of go west, and US-20 had been extended from Yellowstone Park in Wyoming uh, through the sort of southern central part of Idaho in 1940. So anyway, that's all stuff that doesn't really matter. But I don't know, I guess I thought that was interesting. So they also did a bit of sightseeing as they traveled, as one does, and one of their stops was Craters of the Moon. So forgive me for taking a little bit of a detour. I just think the Craters of the Moon is, is actually a really interesting little place. So I'm going there next week. Like, Are you really? Um, I'm talking, my best friend is coming into town this weekend and I'm, cause it's only craters. Of the moon is only an hour away from, uh, from sun Valley. And so I'm like, Oh, I had, cause I don't think I've been since I was four years old. So it's like oh time to go again. I've never been. I'm so excited. Oh, you haven't. It's really uh-uh. interesting. And I'll, and I'll tell you all about it. So you can, you know, tell all of your travel companions this information. Yeah. So, Craters of the Moon, uh, the the national park, is on the Snake River Plain and is 410,000 acres between the small towns of Cary, Idaho and Arco, Idaho. And uh, I believe we talked about this a little bit. Arco is famously the first community in the world to be lit by electricity generated by nuclear power. And it's the Craters of the Moon are in central Idaho. And so the park is made up of a lava field from volcanic eruptions as far back as 15,000 years ago, with the most recent coming about 2,000 years ago. And the area encompasses the entire Great Rift Volcanic Rift Zone. I don't fully know what that means, but if you are into geology, hopefully that means something cool to you. And the area is a composite field made up of about 60 lava flows and 25 cones. Again, don't really know what that means, but it is the largest of its kind in the continental U.S. And here's a really interesting fact. It has nearly every variety of basaltic lava, as well as tree molds, which are cavities left by lava incinerated trees, lava tubes, which are now, you know, empty caves, and several other volcanic features. So that's very cool. That is so cool. I know. Just science, man. Yeah. Uh, Plants and animals Mm. began to inhabit the area as lava fields were still cooling, and many of those species still remain today. So prior to recorded history, the Shoshone-Bannock peoples built stone windbreaks used to protect their campsites from the dry summer wind at Indian Tunnel, which is a lava tube, if I recall correctly. But there isn't any evidence of permanent habitation in that area, I think because the area is, is a plains, basically, and there's not anything to block wind and stuff like that. And so you can actually still today hike to Indian Tunnel. I think if you get onto uh, either nps.org or nationalparks.org, they will give you instructions on how to hike that. So white explorers crossed the area in the early 19th century with Captain Benjamin Bonneville, who had instructions to report his findings of the area to the War Department. 
So in the 1850s and 1860s, pioneers followed an alternate route of the Oregon Trail that used the old Indian trails that skirted around the lava flows. And this alternate route is called Goodale's Cutoff, named after Tim Goodale, who led the wagons originally. Then in 1901, Israel Russell explored the area with the United States Geological Survey and provided the first geological description of the area that he originally called Cinder Buttes. Other white travelers who visited the area in the 19th century created local legends that the area looked like the surface of the moon. And so geologist Harold T. Stearns coined the name Craters of the Moon in 1923 while recommending its preservation as a national monument. A year later, in 1924, a local Boisean, Robert Limbert, explored the area and wrote several newspaper and magazine articles, the most famous one being the one that appeared in National Geographic titled Among the Craters of the Moon. And due in part to Limbert's article, President Calvin Coolidge proclaimed Craters of the Moon a national monument on May 2nd, 1924. And so amenities began to be added for tourists in 1927, and within 20 years, visitation in one year reached over 100,000 visitors. Wow. Here's a great fact. In 1969, NASA astronauts explored the monument while training to visit the moon by learning to look and collect specimens in an unfamiliar environment. But when they finally reached the moon, they found that Crater of the Moon actually looked nothing like the actual surface of the moon. Oh, man. <laughs> I know, such a bummer. But I, I don't, I mean, I don't know enough about the moon, but I, I feel like that would be a bummer to be like, oh, this maybe is what the moon looks like. And you get there and you're like, oh, it doesn't look anything like. <laughs> right. <laughs> but at the same time, the average person will probably never know what the moon actually looks like. So you can pretend still. So then in 1970, Congress creates Craters of the Moon Wilderness, one of the first sites in the country to have this designation, meaning that Craters of the Moon is protected under the National Wilderness Preservation System. Then in 2002, a portion of the park that included lava flows became a national preserve. And in 2017, Craters of the Moon was designated as an international dark sky park. And that is designation of, quote, a land possessing an exceptional quality of starry nights and a nocturnal environment that is specifically protected for its scientific, natural, educational, cultural heritage and or public enjoyment, end quote. Nice. So you, you can visit Craters of the Moon any time of the year, but the national organizations warn that in the winter, temperatures can dip below zero degrees Fahrenheit and blizzard conditions can occur, especially because winds can blow 15 to 30 miles an hour on a daily basis. Some tours are offered through programs by the National Park Service and the Bureau of Land Management, but mostly the area is good for camping and sort of self-exploration. All campsites are first come, first serve, and so for more details on how to camp in Craters of the Moon, which I would recommend doing sooner rather than later by the time this comes out, or save it for next summer, visit nps.gov slash crmo. So this is one of the places that Alwilda and Merle and Leroy visited while they were traveling. And so while they're at Craters of the Moon, Alwilda says that Merle had a chance to hit Leroy over the head in one of the caves, but didn't for reasons Alwilda didn't make clear. And she says, quote, After we left the Craters of the Moon, I was too close to Merle in the car with my head kind of on Merle's shoulder. Dad didn't like it. He told me to sit over where I belonged, end quote. So the tension is, is starting to build between the three of them. 
So their next stop is in Cary, Idaho, a small town in southern Blaine County, about 40 miles south of Sun Valley, where I am right now. And the population in 1950 was about 100. So it kind of gives you an idea of how small it really is. So according to Alwilda, Leroy took her over to the sport shop bar, which was presumably something like a convenience store, and quote, got me some candy. I came back over to the car before dad did. We talked about doing away with dad that night, end quote. So the trio left Cary and drove south a little longer before stopping on the side of the road somewhere in Lincoln County on the evening of October 19, 1950. And just after midnight, Alwilda and Merle decide that now is the time to do it. So oh, Merle gets out of the car and he pulls out a 22 caliber rifle out of the back seat and he places the barrel through the ventilator window. And so those are those little triangle windows on old cars and trucks. We don't have them anymore, but uh, I feel like everyone kind of knows, you know, a car that had one. So he puts it in the in the ventilator window and obviously pointing toward Leroy's head. Alwilda is sitting on the other side of Leroy, and Merle tells her to get out of there so he doesn't accidentally shoot her. And so he tells her to get underneath the steering wheel. She gets underneath the steering wheel and uses her hand. She puts her hand on her dad's shoulder. And she says, quote, I didn't have to hold him up. I just had my hand there, end quote. And then a shot was fired. Now, Merle claims he didn't pull the trigger. He said all that he did was take the safety off and the gun fired. But Alwilda says, quote, I honestly believe Merle pulled the trigger. I have shot that gun lots of times and it never did go off when I took the safety off. I don't believe it would go off like that, end quote. So then oh, the deed is done. They wrap Alwilda's father's body in a piece of canvas, and they drive north back toward Blaine County. And as they're driving, Alwilda's dog Pooch begins making noises. He's snarling and growling at them, partially, I'm sure, because there is a dead body in the back seat, and also Ugh. probably because he just experienced this loud gunshot, and there's just sort of pure evil in the car, honestly. Right. So afraid that the dog would draw attention to them as they were driving with Leroy's body, quote, they decided it would be best to get rid of the animal, end quote. And so for animal lovers, please perhaps skip ahead like a minute. Um, it, it is a little bit brutal. And Anthony, I apologize. I know that you are a dog lover. So from the Times News in Twin Falls, quote, William said he took the small dog from the car so that its death would not be witnessed by the Reams girl and beat it to death with an automobile jack handle. Although he wanted to spare her the sight of her pet being killed, both Williams and Miss Reams have admitted that her father was seated beside her when the bullet entered his head, end quote. So, of course, that is pointing out the hypocrisy of, I don't want this girl to see me kill her dog, but obviously it's fine that she just watched me kill her father. And probably has, like, remnants of blood and other... Yeah, yeah. And so... Merle leaves Pooch's body in Lincoln County and, like, they don't even really bother burying it. As they near Bellevue, uh, which is 20 miles south of Sun Valley, they see a gravel pile on the side of the road. And they pull over and Merle pulls Leroy's body out of the car and he throws it in the gravel pile and he only partially covers it up. He doesn't even fully cover it up. He just sort of leaves it there. And so knowing the body would be found soon, they decide to leave the state. And so the two of them go down to Magna, Utah, where Merle's brother lived. And there, Merle introduced Alwilda as his wife, quote, and we occupied the same bed, end quote. Jeez. So the couple stay with 
his brother for two or three days before they find themselves an apartment in Magna. Now, at that apartment, probably not in the apartment, but around it, they burn a box full of pictures, Leroy's clothing, and other bits of evidence that would tie Leroy to them. Now, after a bit of time, Merle's brother heard about the body of Leroy, who is, of course, Alwilda's father, being found, and they also get word that Alwilda and Merle are wanted for murder. And they deny the crime. They say that Leroy and the couple had parted ways at Carrie and someone else must have killed him, but they'll go to Idaho to clear things up. And Merle comes up with this plan that he thinks will get them off. And that plan is that they would send a telegram to Alwilda's Aunt Mabel in Minnesota saying that they were in trouble and asking for money to be sent to Idaho Falls. And the logic, I think, here is if they were going back to the state that they supposedly murdered Alwilda's father in, then they surely couldn't be guilty. Like, why would they return to the scene of the crime if they were guilty, right? Yeah, like, right. they'd be stupid to return if they'd actually had killed him. And... So Alwilda says, quote, we came back to Malad, Idaho, and sent a telegram to my Aunt Mabel and told her I was in serious trouble. I instructed, I instructed my aunt to send her reply to Idaho Falls, and then we went to Idaho Falls and stayed there for two or three days, awaiting for a reply from my aunt, which never came, end quote. Alwilda said about that return trip to Idaho, quote, to me, that car had a smell of runny blood and a smell of death. We put all different kinds of perfume and menin's shave lotion on the car to get rid of the smell. On the way back to Idaho, we burned the seat where Dad's blood got on it. Rusty, who's, which is Merle's nickname, was afraid they were going to try to take a blood test. It was Merle's idea to get back to Idaho Falls, get the money from the telegram, and get lawyers, and tell them the first story that I told, that Dad just left us at Cary and get clear of this charge. I wanted to get out of the country, end quote. So obviously, sending a telegram with details of where to send money is going to result in being arrested at the Western Union office in Idaho Falls, where they stopped to inquire about money they thought Aunt Mabel would send. Quote, on the evening of about the third day, when we went to the telegraph office and we came out, a couple officers walked across the street and told us we were under arrest for murder, end quote, and that they were arrested on October 28, 1950. So after their arrest, the 14-year-old Alwilda is sent to the juvenile authorities while the 25-year-old Merle was being held by adult authorities, and they were arraigned before probate judge Ross B. Haddock on October 31, 1950. From the Times News on November 1st, quote, Williams stood stolidly, his hands clasped behind his back while the judge read the complaint. Miss Reams, however, appeared less stolid than Williams. She nervously toyed with a somewhat toothless rat tail comb she had been allowed to take with her when she was brought from the Jerome County Jail. She wore a pink house dress and a blue kerchief, which covered her braided light brown hair. Officers said her better clothes were blood spattered after the slaying. Oh, Williams geez. was wearing jeans and a work shirt open at the neck. Aside from greeting each other when they were brought into the courtroom, the accused pair spoke their first words since their arrest when they conferred over whether or not to waive a preliminary hearing. The court procedure had to be explained to Miss Reams several times before she understood it fully, end quote. Hmm. And of course, this just speaks to her age and her immaturity in that she just didn't, like, she didn't think it through. So ultimately, they decided to waive preliminary hearing and they were held without bail. And again, from the Times News, quote, Faced with further separation until the yet undetermined date of their trial, Miss Reams showed her first emotion. She sobbed briefly on William's shoulder and clung to his arm. Sheriff Clayton said throughout her questioning, her only anxiety has been to be with William. So she still is under his spell and, and really thinks that she uh, is in love with him. 
So, Alwilda originally took the credit for the idea to kill her father, flee to Magna, and then uh, telegram her aunt and return to Idaho. In her first admissions to the state authority, she takes all the blame. Ultimately, she says she and Merle discussed it and believed that if she took credit for the idea, she would get off because she was a minor. But very quickly, probably with some poking and prodding from the state, uh, within just a few days, she changes her story. And officials took down this official statement on December 9th, 1950, only a month after their arrest. Quote, Merle asked me the night Dad was killed if I would take the blame if we were caught. He said it would be easier on me as I was a minor. I memorized that first story from rehearsing it so many times. It was that Dad left us at Cary and we never saw him again. Someone else must have killed him, end quote. And then it's in this statement where Alwilda admits, quote, It was okay with me at all times for Merle to do away with my dad. The reason was to get rid of dad so Merle could have me. Dad told Merle and me that there were $2,600 in shares in mining stock. And she says, I believe the star mine out of Salty's Montana. The bank book showed about $600 in the account in the name of Redacted. Rusty was going to wait until the thing cleared up and get me to go down and identify myself and get the money from the bank, end quote. That bank book that she says had $600 in the account and the shares was never found, so Alwilda thought that they may have accidentally burned it when they burned some of her father's other things. And in several newspaper articles after her arrest, Alwilda is quoted as saying, quote, Well, my father lived by the law of the gun. He who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. I guess he who lives by the gun shall die by the gun, end quote. Oh, man. Which is wild. That's a, that's a crazy thing to say no remorse and yeah, yeah it's she really seemed so bitter at him mm-hmm. for not letting a 14 year old marry a man who was 10 years older than her oh. so alwilda is held in the jerome county jail until her trial in february and so on january 11th while being held in jail she turned 15 years old from the Times News on February 2nd, 1951, quote, Alwilda received a few presents, mostly from relatives, and one greeting card from relatives in North Dakota contained money. It just happened on the day Alwilda celebrated her birthday. Ice cream and cake was served as dessert for dinner at the jail. It was not planned, but it worked out nicely for the girl, end quote. So on January 24th, 1951, Merle pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, and on February 1st, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. After Merle's sentence, Alwilda's court-appointed lawyer pleaded clemency for Alwilda, saying that Merle was truly the brain of the operation. And with that, I think because of with her age, and I think with even though she, you know, kind of claims that it was both of their ideas, I think they understand who really has the influence in this relationship. And so Judge D.H. Sutphin and prosecuting attorney Howard Atkins agreed to change her charge to murder in the second degree. And so she pleaded guilty to the second-degree charge and was also sentenced to life imprisonment. Alwilda and Merle were driven to Boise in the same car. Alwilda was up front with the matron, and Merle was in the back behind the cage. And Alwilda Reams entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on February 9th, 1951. And so here is her intake form. Murder in the second degree, plea guilty, sentence life. Lincoln County, race, white, sex, female, height, 65 and three-fourths inches, so she's about 5'5", 153 pounds, age 15, eyes brown, hair auburn, complexion light. 
We don't have Bertillion. She was one of eight inmates in the women's ward when she entered, including Norma Van Ostrin, who I cover in episode 28, Grace Elizabeth Scott, who I covered in episode one, Verna Keller from episode 56, and her escape buddy, Margaret Barney, and Elizabeth Lottie Lacey, who I will actually be covering at the end of the season. And she was... uh, Elizabeth Lacey was the only woman in the women's ward for first-degree murder, and so obviously she is the youngest inmate by far. The closest inmate in age was Verna Keller, who was 21, so a full six years older uh, than Alwilda. So on March 24th, 1951, Alwilda's cousin, whose name is redacted, wrote Len Jordan, then governor, asking for clemency for Alwilda, saying, quote, please bear with me while I tell you her background as I see it, end quote. So this cousin reports that Leroy's mother died when he was 14, and his five grown sisters tried to help keep him, quote, in the right path, end quote, but he went into the army, quote, where he took up too much whiskey and the wrong kinds of friends, end quote. After he married Alwilda's mother and then his wife left, Leroy left Alwilda in North Dakota before taking her to Oregon before she bounced around from school to school. And this is uh, from the letter, quote, Leroy was gone all day from home at his work. Alwilda was left to roam the streets. The nice people of the town had not the time to spend on the poor little lonesome girl of a bachelor whom whiskey sometimes got the best of him. And she was referred to as that bad little Reams girl. (sighs) The rowdy, tough element took over. Poor child had no mother to advise her and a father who loved her dearly and would not harm a hair on her head, drunk or sober. Uncle, referring to Leroy, would not spank her for anything, and she always got her own way regardless of who it hurt. Uncle expected her to be a little lady and go to school and overlook him, but as I told Uncle, a child must respect their parents and get their example from dad and mother. I feel Alwilda needs another chance, and I don't see how anyone could have expected her to get it in the penitentiary with older women unless your state is far different from other places, end quote. (laughs) And this cousin also wrote word and clap saying uh, they hoped that they could continue to write Alwilda while Alwilda was in prison and said they would be responsible responsible for Alwilda's rehabilitation if the prison would release Alwilda saying quote I'm pleased she's taking a, a vocational training and I'm happy to think you can change her outlook on life but the penitentiary for a 14 year old child is pretty bad p-e-r-t-t-y <laughs> I think it was just a typing error uh, but I think it's funny I think <laughs> I think her crime was of the worst, but a child whom has only seen the unbecoming side of life should have just a little heartfelt concern from society, end quote. But heartfelt concern from society is not really what Alwilda received, as evidenced from a letter to the editor in the Daily News from New York City, quote, what a terrible truth was contained in teenager Alwilda Reem's confession after the killing of her father. Dad had no control. He waited too long to bring me up, and I got too big for him to spank at 14. Which is pretty close to the actual quote, but you can see sort of how newspapers twist things a little bit. <laughs> Just a little. Continuing the, the letter to the editor, this new psychology of sparing the rod and spoiling the child has resulted in a record number of teenagers in trouble. Look around and you will see that the best children today are those of stern, old-fashioned parents. Signed, in all caps, JUST A MOTHER. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Awilda originally, quote, made a fairly good adjustment, end quote, to prison. The matron said of her during her first few years, quote, Awilda Reams is obedient, willing to help others, and also willing to do what she can, improving but slow, end quote. 
a little while later, she said, quote, Alwilda is improving in conduct and is trying to learn to cook, sew, and do housework. A very good ironer, end quote. <laughs> then four years after arriving in 1955, the matron reported, quote, obeys orders and is willing to do all she can for others, end quote. So being 15 years old when she first arrived, she obviously needed some schooling, and it was reported in 1955 that she was doing some ninth grade work. So Alwilda's parole case was denied first in 1954, but in January 1956, her life sentence was changed to 16 and a half years, subject to good behavior, um, which usually then means that once they're given a, a definite sentence, they usually have to serve a third of that before they can be considered for parole. So throughout her time in prison, she attended religious services, uh, if you'll forgive the pun religiously. Um, prison, the prison chaplain initially reported, quote, Miss Reams has made a complete confession of her crime, has attended all religious services. She has also expressed her desire to live a Christian life, end quote. By 1955, she was attending fewer church services, but still attended um, quite a few times. Alwald's attitude began to change in 1956, however. And at this point, she's 20 years old and has been locked up for her later teenage years. And just think about how you were between the ages of 15 and 20. Um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you want to go out and experience the world. You like are starting to feel like you're an adult. And I think that is what Alwilda is going through. But she is in prison. Like She can't do all those things that all of us did when we were wild and crazy, you know, 15 to 20 year olds mm -hmm. anthony what were you up to between the ages of 15 and 20 you know i i just got out of my phase of being a magician and uh <laughs> shut up was <laughs> i was literally riding a unicycle and uh doing magic tricks and, and then i was getting into music and so i was playing um bass and punk bands so i was getting into trouble uh of my own sort there Oh, but couldn't you um, but, just magic your way out of it? Uh, yeah, I mean, sleight of hand is a very <laughs> good skill I learned as a kid. So. <laughs> That's so funny. How um, about you, Sky? Oh, gosh, what was I doing? Playing soccer. Here's the thing. I actually really was not getting in trouble because I am an introvert, I guess is maybe the nice way of saying it. I don't remember this, but my mom said one time that she was like, I think I had mentioned like, oh, yeah, all my friends went out and... My mom was like, well, why didn't you go out? Or I think I came home early from something. And she was like, oh, is the is the event done already? And I was like, no, I just wanted to come home. Like, I was, I was, <laughs> such, I was such a loser. Oh. So um, I was not getting in trouble. So I would have been fine had I had I been in prison in, in these years. Um, but I think, I guess really my point is that it's, I think it's understandable that perhaps her attitude starts to change. And... Yeah. So both the matron and the chaplain reported in July 1956 that Alwilda's attitude had changed, quote, for the worse lately. She's been trying to exhibit herself when brought outside on business, particularly in regard to male prisoners. And it has been reported that she has remarked she really intended to have a good time following her release. Live it up. She intended to have a gay <sighs> time for herself following her release, end quote. She wants to get the attention of men. She's grown up. She's not a child anymore, thank heavens. But despite these reports, authorities began to discuss a release for Alwilda in 1956. 
And in relation to her release, Alwilda's mother, who hasn't ever been in Alwilda's life before, wrote, quote, I am the mother of Alwilda Reams. My husband and I own our own home. Five children, one daughter married. We have four children at home, ranging from age 16 to 11, three girls and one boy, and we want her very much and would like very much to have her paroled to us if possible. We are in a position to take good care of her, and we love her very much, and she wants to come home in all the letters I get from her, end quote. So I'm not sure how often she was writing her mother. I'm not sure if it's her mother who wrote her first or if she reached out to her mother, but this is the first time that we see any interaction between her and her mother. So authorities stated, quote, it is unknown just how favorable the influence of her mother and stepfather could be, but it is questioned in view of the mother's lack of interest prior to Alwilda coming here. Another unknown factor is just how much control the mother and stepfather can exercise on the favorable side of Alwilda's behavior. It is thought she will need considerable skilled professional help and guidance if she is to make a satisfactory and personal adjustment after leaving here, end quote. But on August 6, 1956, the Board of Corrections grants Alwilda a parole effective on September 10th. And so she is indeed paroled to her mother who lived in Iowa. And I did get some feedback from a listener who just wanted to make sure that everyone understood the difference between parole and a pardon. So a parole, uh, when you're paroled, basically it just means that you are released and and you can go and live a normal life, but you do have to check in with authorities. Um, Often you have conditions like you can't be around other convicts, you can't be drinking, you can't do drugs, you have to get a job, you have to, you know, write monthly reports, whatever it is. If you are pardoned, you are not under any sort of authority. You don't have to check in with anyone. You know, like Duncan, he received an unconditional pardon. And as you heard, the warden said, I don't know anything about him because he was pardoned. I don't check up with him anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. But Alwilda is paroled. So she has to check in with authorities. She has to have a job. And, and she does. The She's paroled to her mother, who lived in Iowa, and the Iowa Board of Parole sent a letter offering Alwilda a job at a nursing home in Carroll, Iowa. And apparently the owner of this nursing home had been employing parolees in the past, and so it seemed like a, a good fit for her. And so she was indeed released on parole on September 10th, 1956. And so she served five years, seven months, and one day of her original life sentence. Now, a really interesting statistic is that in her five years, she served with 35 different women. And that included Barbara Ann Singletons, Edna May Hester's, and Virginia Pugmire's first days. And those are respectively episodes 15, 44, and 27. She served with Mildred Knox, who I covered in episode 11. She served with Lena Pink Proud, who I covered in episode 30. She served with Doris May Ainsworth, episode 57. Josephine Fort, episode 24. And June Skinner, episode 26. And then, of course, that includes a whole slew of women who I haven't talked about yet. So she arrived in Iowa on January 12, 1958, and began work at that nursing home in Carroll, Iowa. Her Iowa parole officer, C.C. Novinger, wrote H.P. Fales, who I believe was the secretary of the Board of Corrections, saying, quote, I have been calling on her each month since she arrived in Iowa, and I am happy to report Alwilda has been able to rehabilitate herself to the extent she has made several good friends and able to meet the public ladylike, end quote. And this is the only report that we have, though I'm sure there were plenty others that were written, and her behavior was seen as so good and positive that she was granted a final release on June 1st, 1958. 
And she did so well at that nursing home in Carroll that eventually she worked her way up to nursing home administrator. Wow. Yeah. Nice. So Good for her. I know. So then on July 14th, 1958, uh, I found a marriage record of her to a man named Lloyd Edward Finnerin in Missouri, though they were both from Carroll, Iowa. And she and Lloyd had two children together, a son Robin in 1958 and a daughter Rebecca in 1960. At some point, the family moved to Nebraska, where in Lincoln, she worked as a hotel manager. And the Lincoln Star reported on July 16, 1964, six years after their marriage, that Alwilda was filing for divorce, citing extreme cruelty. Then, on December 31, 1965, she married Paul W. Fritchie in Wahoo, Nebraska. I hope I'm saying Wahoo. that right. Wahoo. Wahoo, uh, because that's fun. So Paul adopted her children from her marriage to Finnerin, and they had two children of their own, Paul Edward, born in 1967, and Betty, born in 1969. Once again, though, the Lincoln Star reported that on January 20th, 1971, Alwilda filed for divorce from Paul, asking for custody of the four kids. And in this report, we see her name listed as Alavilda for the first time, which is the spelling of her name that she would seem to use for the rest of her life. So rather than Alwilda, she's now going by Alavilda. And if she changed her name, I can't really blame her for trying to change that and actually leave the past behind her. Mm-hmm. At some point after the divorce, she married Alfred James Maher. Couldn't find records to find the exact date of when that happened. They did have another daughter, Colleen, born in 1973. And I think that they remained married for the rest of her life, but uh, I couldn't find records one way or the other. I'm assuming because I couldn't find a divorce record that they did stay married, and, and she did retain that last um, name. That's why I'm, I'm not totally sure. But in 1985, she moved to Hastings, North Dakota, where she worked in senior services for a few years, and she remained in North Dakota, where she spent some of her early years with her aunt and uncle, who had cared for her prior to her moving to Montana. And then Alwilda, or Alavilda, passed away on October 13th, 2009, and she is buried at the Spring Creek Cemetery in Hastings. And this is from the obituary on her find a grave, which I think is very sweet. Quote, her grandchildren were very important to her. She liked the outdoors, sewing, crocheting, and collecting dolls. She is survived by her children, 15 grandchildren, and eight grandchildren, end quote. Huh. And per the photo of her grave marker on findagrave.com, her gravestone reads, quote, in loving memory of mom, end quote. And so that is Alwilda Reams, our youngest, who was just 14, well, 15, when she entered uh, the penitentiary. Nice, guy. Thanks. Yeah, what a I, story. I know. And, and it's I, I was thinking about this. Uh, I've been listening to some true crime podcasts, and it's so hard because she committed a heinous crime with pretty much zero remorse, at least until she was older, that, that we could see. Um, but she does change you know, her life and, and works really hard to become a, a really good citizen. And, and from what it seems like a, a really loving mother and grandmother and great grandmother. And so where do we, as historians, as people making podcasts, as people listening to podcasts, like where do we hold her and space for people like her? Do we forgive what they did at the beginning because of the way that they changed their life? Um, um. Do we, 
hold that both things can be true and that someone so young truly can make a mistake and and go on to to fix their lives and if we do that then how does that impact the family of the person that they injured and and or killed like I don't know I've been thinking about that recently and you know wondering where people like Alwilda and, and many people that we've covered on the podcast and will continue to cover on the podcast like where where do we put them in terms of categories you know how do we feel about yeah. them at the end of this our whole role here I think is to humanize these individuals and place them in their moment in history and kind of their darkest moment in their lives that brought them to the old pen and and hopefully you know do it honestly and Mm -hmm. so that listeners can can relate or you know not relate and learn a little bit Mm -hmm. more about just the human condition and uh Mm -hmm. i don't know we can grow and understand ourselves more by by studying these outliers in our society that Unfortunately, it's it's an interesting story in itself, and mm-hmm. I think I kind of comes down to you know as long as we do a good job of trying to reveal the whole scope of somebody's life, you know, as best as we can through newspapers and, and prison right. files, we might find those redeeming things, and we might not, and mm-hmm. that's the tough part. Is like you know we spend a lot of time doing this, and to what end? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it entertainment? Is it telling history or is it what did Arthur Hart say that history is you know inherently interesting because it it's about us it's about human beings Mm -hmm, and our mm -hmm. experiences and that's always going to be interesting so yeah well and and I you know too that it's so easy to see this person as a prisoner and someone who murdered her father and be like wow what a horrible person she was and to make these really snap judgments and and I have heard that actually of visitors at the pen of like oh, these people were prisoners, they deserve to be treated in X, Y, and Z way. And it's like, well, maybe, but also, like, what if we pull apart this story? And and I don't know, I think this is such an interesting question to wrestle with. And maybe, you know, I think we'll be wrestling with it and have been wrestling with it as long as this podcast continues and, and hope that that everyone continues to wrestle with these questions that to remember, I think that we don't live in a, in a black and white world that there's gray and there's color and, and what do we do with it? It takes working out. And, uh, anyway, I don't know why I got so philosophical at the end of this very long episode. (laughs) So sorry. I just, I don't know. I've just been thinking about it, but anyway, (laughs) welcome back everyone to two and a half hours. Yeah. If you've made it to this point, Thank you. I really appreciate you. And Seriously. I feel like it was like pent up, like yeah. need to tell these stories. Yeah, I think it <laughs> Just was. From this... It's been, gosh, almost a year probably since we've done stories like this. Maybe a little bit less, mm-hmm. maybe half a year, but oh, it feels so good. It does. Yeah. Well, we're well, back. Oh. And we have some amazing stories for you all season and yeah. um, partially a, a, a new co-host to fill my place for a few episodes. Um, so you'll be Which I don't know his... why Anthony doesn't even do anything. So it's true. What in the world could I he just... why do we need a, an extra co-host? <laughs> <laughs> just taking a break. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> Anthony's just nah. living the high life on the beach in the Bahamas oh while we're slaving away over our podcast. Just kidding. Oh. Anthony is the hardest working man that I know. Uh, Bahamas sounds so good right now. Or Bermuda. But uh, <laughs> I will settle for Craters of the Moon next week. Craters and, of the Moon. Uh, 
we're going to have so much fun. <laughs> Tell us all about it. I will. Absolutely. Yeah. All well, right. Well, let's wrap this up. Let's wrap this up. Great work, Sky. Again, Same it's to you. great to chat with you and catch up. And thank you all for listening. Uh, we, we love you all and appreciate you. And uh, do your own time. And do your own number. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. <laughs> Bye. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. Then we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.